this may be one of the most significant messages I deliver to church at the red door uh, while I am your pastor. There are seasons for everything. Lord Jesus, help us this morning. Give us insight into the mystery of your emergent kingdom, things hidden long ago. Some of the prophets saw these days upon us. They announced them to the degree that they understood it. But even the Apostle Paul was floored by some of the mysteries that were unveiled after the cross event that happened 2,000 years ago. And yet the ch we stay so ignorant of some of these things, Lord. Help us not as a church be ignorant of these things. Give us insight today in Jesus' name. Amen. I absolutely love the Palestinian people, right? You're hearing some of that today and couched in the terms of the puppet show as we've been describing over the last few weeks. Things going on on the stage, it's usually a sense that you have to take sides. It's Arabs, Jews, Palestinians, Israelis, right? You just don't, you, you don't know how to feel. You feel pro probably inflamed depending on who you've watched and uh, what the rhetoric has sounded like. Jesus really doesn't give us an option, does he? We are to love all people. Jesus came to save the world. He came to die for the world. That includes all Arab-speaking people. It includes Jewish men and women. And it includes then the rest of us Gentiles. He died for me. He died for my Jewish friends. And he died for my Palestinian friends. And I do have Palestinian friends. This is not a place today where we come up and we try to just all pile on or pile on against one group, ethnic group or another. I've said from the beginning that our battle is not against flesh and blood, quoting the Apostle Paul, but against powers, principalities and spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places and Hamas and Hezbollah and other factions of Islamic extremism. Oh, certainly over these last few weeks have reared their heads as being evil. And we call evil, evil. Isaiah 5, 20 said that there's a day when people call evil good and good evil. And we have to call evil, evil. Stripping a young woman down and carting her off. Rape, shooting babies in the head. That's evil. It's not hard to know that that's evil. Their challenges, Israel's not without fault, and it's ever since the November 29th declaration by the United Nations General Assembly, the votes, 10 abstaining, 33 in favor, and 13 against, the reestablishment of the nation of Israel, and then another several months later, in March, May 14th, and 1948, when Ben-Gurion got up and signed the existence of Israel, well, that was the official day. The Brits pulled out after the British mandate, uh, what would have been called uh, mandatory Palestine, knowing that they would probably quickly be overrun by their Arab neighbors, and they weren't. It was a miracle. It was a miracle. The reestablishment of the nation of Israel as a state was a miracle. A lot of people don't understand why the state was put there, and we can look at the puppet stage and try to understand why Israel became a nation again. Jews and Arabs were living fairly peaceably before World War I. There was about 10 to 1 Arab 
or Palestinian, but Arab speakers to Jewish men and women, but there were probably 70,000 Jewish men and women, and then another 700,000 Arabs in that area, or at least Palestinians, most of which are Arabs, were Arab-speaking. World War I happened, and the Ottoman Empire began to crumble as, a, as that came to an end, and then the Britain took over, and they promised the statehood, essentially, or at least a declaration through the Balfour Declaration in 1917, and basically reneged, and then the horrors of World War II. Even prior to World War II, or early stages of World War II, 40,000 Jews, some of the most prominent Jews on the planet, uh, were allowed to leave if they wanted to Germany, but they couldn't take anything other than two suitcases and about 40,000 returned. There have been a number of aliyahs, which means return to the land over the number of years, at least five that are really considered the first five aliyahs. There were, but the primary, certainly after World War II, and uh, you have to understand that many, many returned. And why did they return? Persecution, we looked at that last week, Jeremiah 16. I think Jeremiah was seeing those days. He would return them to the land, but it would be through persecution. And that's exactly why Israel became a nation. They had nowhere else to go. They had nowhere else to go. Please understand, they had nowhere else to go. Even in the nations where they were being persecuted, even after the Holocaust, Holocaust survivors would be in DP camps, displaced people camps. And there was nowhere for them to go. They would somehow board ships and even the British would not even allow them to port or get off unless they had certain papers and they were turned away even from prior to Israel's statehood, they were turned away. They had nowhere to go. Now, the question for us this morning, was that a God thing? Was that an orchestration of God to fulfill prophecy or was that incidental to God's plans? Is Israel still maintain an identity unique in their calling in God's eyes? I believe the answer to that, and I will say this emphatically, is yes. There is a plan and a destiny for Israel that is yet not complete. And that's what we looked at last week. The question was asked, why so much anti-Semitism in the world? And I gave you two points that I believe summarize why there's anti-Semitism, why the uniqueness of anti-Semitism. Prior to Jesus, we see the desire for Satan through various factions to destroy Israel so that the seed would not come. Once the seed came, then you would say, well, there shouldn't be any more anti-Semitism. In fact, Israel as a nation, ethnic Israel, generally rejected Jesus as their Messiah. Not all Jews, because obviously the New Testament is written by Jews who believed in Jesus, with the possible exception of Luke. But why anti-Semitism now? And this is the point because I think there are several contingencies for Jesus to come back, not the least of which is the national spiritual restoration of ethnic Israel. I want to be clear about that. I, I, I think that it's critical that we as a body understand, and that's why if I love the Palestinians, I will want to see the, the national, spiritual, ethnic transformation under Jesus of Israel because that is the best thing for the Palestinians. Because as we'll see this morning, the prophets had seen a day when actually all the way from Egypt, all the way to Assyria, right through what was considered Palestine 
and is now considered either the West Bank or Gaza Strip or whatever, or the nation of Israel, there's going to be a highway of holiness. And the question is timing. I understand that. But the fact is, Jews and Arabs are coming to believe in Jesus in our lifetime. So we cannot just put that off into some distant future. Are you ready for this? We looked last week at three contingencies for Jesus to return. This is the way I interpret the scripture. Maybe it's impossible to get all theologians to agree, so I can't just stay in the muddle. I have to give you, after 20 years of experience in Israel, and uh, it's been a long road for me, and many of you know I serve on a seminary board, and our seminarians are Jews and Arabs, and, and they believe in Jesus, and so this is not just something that I watched a YouTube video or read a commentary and then copying a commentary. This is through personal experience. So I say that uh, a little bit like Paul told Titus, don't let anybody disregard you, Titus. And so I don't want you to disregard at least this as an understanding and an interpretive grid by which we may view the return of Jesus. Well, we looked at Acts 3, Peter's second sermon. And what did we see? We said, it said, therefore, speaking to the Jews, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that he may send Jesus, the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of the restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient times. Contingency number one, there seems to be in even Peter's second sermon after the infilling of the Holy Spirit, repent so that God might send Jesus once the restoration of all things have taken place. But why repent so that? It seems there's a contingency. Israel's national ethnic restoration under Jesus before Jesus comes back. That's important to see. Then we saw Matthew 23 where Jesus said, oh, how I desired to gather you together as a hen gathers her chicks, and yet you wouldn't have it. You will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's not going to be something terrifying for national Israel. I think Jesus is saying there's going to be a day where you're going to give me the same celebration you gave me when I came in riding on a donkey as Zechariah had seen, but this time I won't be on the back of a donkey. I will come as conquering king to set all things right and usher in the picture that we see in Revelation 21 and Revelation 22. And then the final contingency, and this is significant, asks the question, does Israel still have a calling? Or are they like any other people group, just incidental to God's plans? Though, sure, they can come to the gospel if they want to, but it's not really a fulfillment of epic proportions of Scripture. I just think that view is flawed. I'll be honest with you. I think it's, flaw, it's a flawed view. Israel is a nation again. 700 times in the Old Testament it prophesied in various ways that Israel will become a nation again. We've looked at many of those. I'm going to regather you, Isaiah 11, 11, a second time. Not the Babylonian regathering that was small in scope, that lasted for only a number of years, but a, a real regathering, and that has happened in some of your lifetimes, that is provocative to me. One of the reasons I say this is such an important message that it gets difficult in difficult times. Even Jesus asked the question, when I return, will 
the Son of Man find faith on the earth? Will he find faith? Some of you are struggling, even in the hearing of my voice, with faith. How can all these things be happening? Maybe certain things that are happening in your life, all the pain and the suffering that goes on, and you're just like, and you feel like you're clinging to your faith. When we see God's promises being fulfilled in the nation of Israel, what we see is the, that the reality of God's promises to Israel gives us confidence that he will, in fact, keep his promises to send the Messiah and set all things right. And it's unfolding before our very eyes. That's important for you to see. I want you to go to Romans 11. Some of you have seen, heard me teach through this. I've taught through this in Israel. I've taught, I've taught through this study on, in a bus with two buses, talking from one bus to the next bus and the bus that I was on. We've unpacked this particular chapter. Paul calls this an incredible mystery and warns Gentiles not to be ignorant of this mystery. And yet, I find many in the Christian camp who are still ignorant of this mystery. Paul would be flabbergasted. We will not be ignorant of this mystery. He asks the rhetorical question right off the bat in Romans 11, verse 1. I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? Now, in this context, he's talking about ethnic Israel, not even the remnant of Israel that he had talked about in some previous chapters, not the remnant, the remnant being those that there's always been a remnant. As you'll see in the first few verses here, Elijah was crying out, I'm the only one left. I'm the only uh, God-fearing Jew left. And, and yet, what is God's response? Well, first of all, he says, may it never be. Of course, God's not finished with his people. For I too, Paul says, am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he pleads with God against his own people, Israel. Elijah was sick and tired of their idolatry, their mixture with the nations. He felt empowered to say, it's only me. There's nobody left. Just what Isaiah had seen as well, right? They, they're, they're calling good evil and they're calling evil good. One of the things that you see, people say, well, he's just all pro-Israel and all this. I said, the whole entire scripture of the old covenant, the Tanakh, are generally revolve around the Revival and then the failure of the nation of Israel in cycles over and over and over again. This is not pitting one group, one ethnic group over another in terms of superiority, but it is putting one group above another in terms of calling, specificity of calling. Israel was always called to be a light to the nations. If you're here believing in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, how did you come to know about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Through the Jewish conduit, both Old Testament or the Tanakh or the New Testament, through the remnant who were believing, whether it be the Apostle Paul or Matthew or Peter or whoever else or John or whoever else that was writing, it's been a light to you. And if you're filled with light and your life's been transformed, you have an obligation to that Jewish conduit, at least in terms of honor. How anti-Semitism reared its ugly head, even in the church, historically, is a crime 
I am reformed in many of my views about salvation. Thank you, Martin Luther. But Martin Luther said some of the things that laid the very foundation for the SS itself. He saw many Jews who rejected his message about Jesus. And so some of the things he said were even quoted in Mein Kampf. Most people don't know that. If we don't understand our history, how are we ever going to reach out to our Jewish friends who do know their history? Be aware. Be aware. So he goes on. He said, Lord, they've killed your prophets. They've torn down your altars. I alone am left. No, you're not. And they're seeking my life. But what, is, what was the divine response to Elijah? No, 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 no. I've kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In the same way then, there has also come to be at this present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. There's always been a remnant of Israel. Even in the time of Elijah, there, was those, there were those Israelites who were living under the reign of their king, and there were many who were not. Isaiah described it in Isaiah 8 as those who God had given him. There was always a remnant. Even in the last 2,000 years, they were called various things, Hebrew Christians or whatever. Uh, They mostly assimilated into Gentile churches, but there have been Jewish believers in Jesus for 2,000 years. But in our day, it's growing. There's hardly anybody here that hasn't heard of Jews for Jesus or is now one for Israel or something Hundreds of millions of views. Thousands of Jews are becoming more and more open to the possibility that Jesus was in fact not only their Messiah, but the Messiah of the world, the Savior of the world. And in doing so, it allows them to be married in a spiritual sense to their Arab brothers and sisters. Dr. Saref, I've been in contact with he and Seth Every few days, ever since the incursion happened on the southern border of Israel, and they describing the unbelievable, uh, well, they had a prayer meeting with Arab and Jewish pastors together. They had, uh, they've had extraordinary outpouring between uh, Palestinian Christians towards Israeli Palestinians, uh, Christians who towards the Jewish people. They, they love one another. They, they pray for one another. They support one another. That's a foretaste of what we read in Revelation 21 this morning, a foretaste. That's a foretaste of what it'll look like when Jesus sets all things right. But I don't believe it's going to be a punctuated moment like many people read the prophets and they think, oh, that's all just going to happen in one moment. It's already happening in your lifetime. Jews and Arabs loving Jesus through Jesus, and then by extension, able to love Palestinians, fellow Israelis, and even some of us Gentiles. It's a powerful picture accomplished in Christ and the spirit of Jesus. Pray for those who persecute you. Verse 7 says, what then? What Israel is seeking, it has not obtained, but those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. See, that we don't understand that. that Paul's going to go on to talk about that there has been a hardening over Israel's eyes. They couldn't see the Messiah, but there's an until after that, and that is the contingency number three. 
Let's read. David says in verse 9, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. This was King David. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. That's not a very flattering picture of his fellow countrymen. But verse 11, and this is the key, this is going to unpack the mystery that Paul says, whatever it is, do not be ignorant of this mystery. Are you ready, church, at the red door? Please, I beg you, consider the mystery that is about to be unpacked before your very eyes. I say then, verse 11, did they stumble so as to fall? Did they? I have already preached on this. I preached on the two untils a number of years back, but it is particularly important for us to understand given the world circumstances that we live in today. Did they fall to the point of not being able to get up, may it never be. But by their transgression, by the ethnic Israel's rejection of Jesus, salvation has come to the Gentiles. How so? It was forced out of Jerusalem because one example in Acts 7 is Stephen being stoned. It forced the gospel to begin to go outside of Jerusalem. And of course, Jesus had already told them, Jerusalem, first start in Jerusalem, then to go Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. But they didn't understand that. I can't imagine that they fully comprehended what that would look like, or even more importantly, on the puppet stage of life, what that would would necessitate. It necessitated persecution of their own people to force the gospel outside of just being another little sect of Judaism among several. They were called the way, but God's plans were to go to the end of the earth. And even the prophets had seen it, a light to the nations. Isaiah 52, this this figure, this messianic figure is going to be pierced and he's going to sprinkle the nations, not just sprinkle their own nation, sprinkle the nations. Why? Now we understand that as our ability to be right with the the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because of the atoning blood that has been poured over us through, again, a Jewish Savior named Yeshua or Jesus. Now, the staggering part, he says, may it never be, but by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Why has that happened? In God's plan, why? To make them jealous. Some translations to say to provoke them to jealousy. I think if you look at the history of the church over the last 2,000 years, oh, there's been provocation, but not to jealousy to run the other way. Anytime in the, let me say this again, and I've said it before, it was not any different than what we looked at in Luke 9, Jesus chastising his own people, his own disciples for asking fire to come down from heaven. Every time the church has turned and somehow, whether it be 1099 in the crusades or whatever, and persecuted the Jewish people in the name of Christ, that is satanic, period. Has nothing to do with the spirit of Jesus. The last thing in the world Jesus would have done would persecute his own people. His own statement, I only came to the lost sheep of the house of Israel knowing that then his disciples would take it to the ends of the earth or at least start the process. Part of God's plan is that, in fact, I was on the phone yesterday. I was hesitant to say this. I 
obviously give any names, but uh, I was on the phone yesterday with one of my friends. He had been an ambassador, United States ambassador, a foreign country. He's become a very close friend of mine, a very strong uh, Jewish man. I would say he would say nominal at best, maybe even secular, although his son lives in Israel and converted to Orthodox Judaism. And I just called him to tell him how sorry I was, how his family was safe. And I'd been sharing Jesus with his ambassador for quite some time. And, and we had a long conversation yesterday. And uh, it's in those moments that I think he, he began to ask me questions. I think, I think he desired, I think what he saw in me was a desire to have peace given these uh, tumultuous times. I hope in my love of him that in some way, he was a little bit jealous of my relationship with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob above his own. I could have provoked him and maybe taken some weird anti-Semitic stance. Of course I wouldn't. How can I, as a follower of Jesus, say I distance myself from his own ethnic clan? It's absurd. It's absurd. The task was for us to provoke them to jealousy. They had these Gentiles who knew nothing that were worshiping the God, the gods of the sun and the moon and the stars. I mean, polytheists sacrificing their own children. They have a better relationship and a more, a, a deeper understanding of ostensibly the God of our forefathers. That's what Paul's saying. If their transgression is riches for the world, now catch that. If by ethnic Israel rejecting the Messiah, pushed it, forced it out of Jerusalem, and it came to us halfway around the world now. If by their transgression, the rejection of Jesus, it was riches to the world, how much more will their fulfillment be? Now, will their fulfillment be? Not if their, will their fulfillment be? Paul is already saying there will be a day when Jewish men and women say, Jesus is our Messiah and lives inside of me, and I am now one new man, both me and my Gentile brother, whether it be an Arab-speaking person, a French-speaking person, or an American. It doesn't make any difference. We are now one new man in Christ. In Christ, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, male nor female, slave nor free. In Christ. It's the mystery that Paul also talked about in Ephesians chapter 3. The spiritual forces of wickedness could not see that it's coming. But it was announced now. The dividing wall is torn down. Jews and Gentiles can be one in the Messiah. It's not us having to defend ourselves as Israelis not to marry into these people, not to have anything to do with them, to cut ourselves off from them. That was never the plan of God. The plan of God was world restoration where Jew and Gentile could leave, live peaceably forever. That's the one new man. That's not here yet, but it's also already here. It's not here in the sense that it's fully recognized, but as we've seen from Israel with our friends Jews and Arabs are worshiping together, loving together, and living as family. That's my hope and my only hope for the Middle East. There is no geopolitical solution to this chaos. There is only a spiritual answer. And his name is Jesus. 
Verse 13 says, but I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles. Inasmuch that as I am an apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry if somehow I might move to jealousy, my fellow countrymen, and save some of them. This is important to see. Paul recognized that the Jews didn't have a different deal somehow. He said, I'm hoping that in telling you this, it might move some of my countrymen to be saved. Jews are saved just like Gentiles through the redeeming blood of Jesus. There are some strains of theology among evangelicals who love Israel that somehow have cornered themselves into something called dual covenant theology where somehow the Jews have a different deal than the Gentiles. Paul would say no. I'm In fact, right here, he's saying, I'm hoping to move some of my countrymen to this jealous position so they themselves might be saved. How? In Jesus, just like I was saved, Paul would have said, on the road to Damascus. Verse 15, for if their rejection is reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Now, I hinge a lot of mine, and I'm not unique in this, because I can go back to some of the Puritan writers as I've espoused before, and I think this is Paul's heart. I think what Paul is saying here is he's saying, look, if salvation went to the end of the earth, and let's say we were able to line up all the Gentiles behind me over the last 2,000 years who have their lives transformed and say Jesus was the light to the world and has totally changed my life, and there are billions, billions of them behind me now. And if that happened in light of the Jews as an ethnic group, not the, not the remnant, but as the ethnic group, if that happened with ethnic Israel saying, he is not our Messiah, he is not our son, we don't want anything to do with it, what do you think is going to happen when one day we look at Israel and go, that's a Jesus-centric nation? You say, well, that's just polytheanish Kind of, that's just Pollyannish kind of thinking. Well, let's see if that's what Paul's heart is. That's, he's, that's the rhetorical question he's asking. If they rejected the Messiah and it spread all over the world, what do you think is going to happen when they say, no, Jesus is the Messiah? I wrote a book a number of years back and it came to my mind, I called it the family effect. Imagine if you were to come into my family and say, well, tell me about, you know, tell me about Jeff. You know, tell me, tell me, and he's a terrible guy. My daughter said, you know, he didn't provide for us. He cheated on my mom. He, you know, all this kind of thing. And, and yet you say, wow, he, you know, but he had an effect. Would that diminish that at all? But what if, what if it, what if the family that says, no, 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 he was a great dad. That would, would that help or hurt my ministry? Of course it would help. It would detract from it. And that's what Paul's saying. If they rejected them as the Messiah and it spread to the ends of the earth, what's going to happen when they, when they say, no, Jesus is our long-awaited Messiah? I think it ushers in the final global harvest. See, I, I'm not someone thinks this is getting worse and worse and worse. Well, it might on the puppet stage show, but I'm telling you, I think there is a revival in front of us. As we see Jewish men and women believing into Jesus, we are going to see a commensurate revival around the globe. And that includes right here in the Coachella Valley. I believe that with all my heart.
He goes on to say, now catch this, if their rejection be reconciliation in the world, what would their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the first piece of dough is holy, the lump is also, and if the root is holy, the branches are too. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, I think he's re referring back to Numbers 15, which, which is what happened. What would happen at the harvest, they would bring in, sometimes they would wave the sheaves, but other times they would, they would make some bread. And so if the per first piece of this that you consecrate, and you consecrate that back to God, it makes the rest of all that you're producing here with this, with this bread, it consecrates it and makes it holy. And then he uses, I think, from Jeremiah 17, where Israel was called a, a very fruitful and lush olive tree. And he said, if the, if the branches, if the root, if the root is solid, then the branches are going to be fruitful at someday, someday too. That's what he's saying. Now, there's a question here whether he's talking about their patriarchs as being the, the brand or the root or the original lump of dough, or whether or not he's talking about the remnant of Israel. Um, I can kind of make an argument for either one, but the point is, if the foundations of this, and I kind of lean towards the messianic view that, that Peter and, and, and here Paul are saying, look, if this is holy, Gentiles don't imagine that someday there's not going to be fruit produced from that, even though it may not see it in the interim. That's his argument. Verse 17, if some of the branches... Now he's going to go with this Jeremiah 17 picture of broken off branches. If some of the branches were broken off and you being a wild olive, who's the wild olive? That's me, the Gentile. I'm not a Jew. I'm a wild olive branch. And I think you probably could have described exactly that when I was in college. <laughs> you could have, there's a wild olive branch, dead, uprooted, part of a different degenerate shoot, you know. That's pathetic. He said, look, if the branches were broken off, he's going to explain, and you, you Gentiles, being a wild olive, were grafted in among them and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree. What did I partake of? Or if you're a follower of Jesus and you've been born again, you were a, and you're a Gentile, you were a wild olive branch, and you have now been grafted in contrary to nature, grafted in... To what? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and now even the Pauls and the Matthews and the, and, and, and the Peters and the Johns and all those, and the Mary Magdalene's and, and, and all that. You were grafted into that rich, rich root, even though you were wild, you were grafted in. How did you get grafted in? Where did the room come from? In a sense, there were other branches that were broken off. Ethnic Israel rejected the Messiah. They were broken off. You were grafted in. How can you brag about that? There's nothing to brag about here. It's all an act of a sovereign God. And you now are a rich partaker of the rich root of the olive tree. Don't be arrogant toward the branches. If I had a Palestinian friend here who didn't yet know Jesus, I'd say, and, and was filled maybe with hate, through Hamas or whatever, towards Israelis. And look, I'm not, I'm not going to get into it. I mean, it's a, it's a long, if you know the history of the evolution of the state of Israel, you know, Israel was never perfectly without fault. There were, there were moments when Israel has made some mistakes. I don't support in every way everything Israel's ever done. No different than I support everything America's ever done. Or there's no nation on the face of the earth that's without any fault. I think we're 
We're seeing that here in the United States over the last number of years and still paying a price, whether it be chattel slavery or uh, Native Americans and some of the abuses that occurred. I think the number one selling movie right now deals with how we dealt with the Native Americans. Haven't seen it, but having read some of the reviews. No nation is without fault. This is not. But Israel has a destiny. And it and their salvation, in my view, is a contingency for Jesus to come back and a contingency for world revival to happen. I want to be clear. I don't want to be opaque in this. Don't be arrogant toward the branches. But if you are arrogant, Gentiles, remember that it's not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. Will you then say branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in? Quite right. They were broken off for their unbelief, but you stand by your faith. Don't be conceited, but fear. But fear. For if the God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Behold in the kindness and the severity of God. We live in the West where everybody, you know, it's just always the goodness of God. God's never upset with you. He just is the great Santa Claus in the sky. There's no reason to really fear him. It's just he's kind and he's gracious. He is kind. He is loving. He's gracious. But he is awesome. And he is to be feared. Now, when you say feared, you mean run and hide? No. No different than my own father. There were elements that I feared him and yet I know he loved me. I could run and jump in his lap, but I knew that he held sway when it came to my young life. They were broken off for their unbelief. Behold then the kindness and severity of God to those who fell, severity. But to you, God's kindness. You Gentiles, it's just pure kindness. If you, can, if you continue in his kindness, otherwise you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. And that's happening in your lifetime. And it's starting to scale up. Jewish men and women are believing in Jesus. And peace is breaking out among Arabs and Jews when Jesus comes into the center. And I believe that will continue. Verse 24. If you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and were grafted in contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree... How much more will these who are the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? Do you see what Paul's saying? He's saying, look, if this is possible, you wild olive branches, this is, this is not going to be that complex for God to graft back in the very branches that had been broken off. Okay? Now, and here it is, verse 25. Church at the Red Door, I do not want you to be uninformed of this mystery. So that, okay, you won't be wise in your own estimation. There's been plenty of that over the last 2,000 years. Gentiles have become wise in their own estimation, disregarding the prophetic calling and ultimately the spiritual restoration of the nation of Israel. And as a result, although it was not intentioned, it's become a foundation for anti-Semitism and much of that was generated in Gentiles who claim, and I believe did, love Jesus, 
but they were uninformed of this mystery and they became wise in their own estimation. And that's tragedy. And that makes sharing the gospel with any Jewish person that their, their Messiah changed our life in a deferential tone. I didn't deserve anything and your Messiah came and saved me out of nonsense is a very different attitude than we're the church and you guys rejected the Messiah. Those two things carry a spirit behind it and anybody who's anybody can understand that like that. And that's because people were wise. Gentiles have been wise in their own estimation. Tragic mistake. And here he says, here's what happened. A partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel shall be saved just as it is written. And now he quotes Isaiah 59, 20. Isaiah is seeing this 700 years before the time of Jesus. He says, the deliverer will come to Zion and he will remove ungodliness from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. That happened 2000 years ago, but Jesus is still through the gospel. The proclamation of the gospel by Arabs and Jews and Gentile, all the, all the above, by the proclamation of the gospel, Jesus is still coming to Jerusalem and its surroundings. And it is today. And that's why we support One for Israel. Jews and Arabs taking the gospel into the Middle East so that, why? It's the most loving thing you can do if you love the Palestinians. The most loving thing you can do. Verse 28, from the standpoint of the gospel, ethnic Israel, not all Jews, ethnic Israel, well, they're enemies for your sake. And they were during the time of Paul. He suffered greatly at the hands of his own countrymen. But if you go back into Romans 9 and 10, you'll see that he says, I'll give up my own salvation for my countrymen. They can't see it. Even he was being persecuted by his own people, his own ethnic group. He still says, I'd give up my own salvation that they might see what I have already seen. A risen Jesus. Why? The gifts and the callings of God are irrevocable. Israel had a prophetic destiny from the beginning of time, certainly with the start of Abraham, but even before the foundations were laid, to be a light to the nations. That has not been revoked, even given that ethnic Israel rejected the Messiah, which, by the way, the prophets had seen as well, that they would stumble over the chief cornerstone. From the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the, the, father, the fathers of the tribes. God loves the fathers. He loves the calling. It's a chosen people. And he still loves the Jewish people for the sake of the forefathers. As you were once disobedient to God, but have now been shown mercy because of their disobedience. In other words, we came in because they had rejected the Messiah. So these now also have been disobedient that because of the mercy shown to you, they may also now be shown mercy. That is happening in your lifetime. For God has shut up all in disobedience so that he may show mercy to all. Now, what does that mean? I've preached a message on this. Some of you have heard me preach it. I call the message, the great shut up. The reason we are going to love heaven is that everybody's been shut up in disobedience, meaning there is no pride 
or there's great humility that will reign in heaven because we will all bow before the Prince of Peace, the very King himself, Jesus, the long-awaited Jewish Messiah that was also sent to the world. Nobody's bragging. The Jews had everything and they rejected him. What can they brag about? The Gentiles had nothing and virtually fell into it through the proclamation of the remnant of Jews who sacrificed their own life to take it to these Gentiles that were truly wild, degenerate olive tree branches. How can they brag? We found what we weren't looking for and they couldn't see what they were looking for. He shut up all in disobedience that he might show mercy to all. See what makes heaven is, and we all know this. I mean, you don't want to be around people that are always bragging about their position or how they earned it or all this other kind of stuff. You love, you're real close friends. It's just nobody's trying to be alpha male over the other one and trying to dominate. And it's just beautiful. It's, it's self-giving. It's sacrificial. It's, it's a beautiful thing. We love that. And down here, when we taste it, and it's rare, that's going to define heaven. Because everybody will realize that it was all God. Jews, Jewish men and women will realize it was all our God. And Gentiles will say, we got nothing to brag about. We are, we are not holding ourself in some highfalutin kind of way where we accepted and Israel rejected the Messiah. That's the story that Paul gives. Now, in closing, I need to remind you, just in, in a summary, clearly Daniel 2.21, it's God who changes the times and the epochs. God, God is the one who's orchestrating the season and the life of Israel. The question has been asked, is this kind of the ultimate war? Is this something leading up to? This is, I have no idea. I can speculate. I'm happy to do that. We can say, I, you know, is this the, is it Ezekiel 38, 39? Is this something like that? Is this, is this something? I don't speculate on that. But what I do tell you is that Jews and Arabs are loving one another in Jesus. That is remarkable. It's worthy of remark. But God's the one who changes times and epochs. He removes kings. He establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. So if you understand that foundationally, then this is the close. Are you ready, Church of the Red Door? I'm going to give you a picture of what I believe will happen in advance of Jesus coming back. Don't take this and put this way out in the future after some time that, you know, we're raptured or something like that, some picture that you may have in your mind that gives you license not to share the gospel or to care about the Middle East or to care about what's going on. The reason this message is so important is it activates us to desire to see peace in the Middle East, which we know, or peace for Jerusalem, pray for the peace of Jerusalem, which we know is Jesus if he lives in you. If he doesn't live in you, this may not make any sense, and you'll think this is blasphemy or absurdity. But if Jesus lives in you, the one thing you want to happen is for Jesus to be made manifest, whether it be in a kibbutz in Israel or a mashav or in the West Bank or in Lebanon, or in Damascus, in Syria, or in, the Gaza, or in Gaza today. If you want peace, you pray for Jesus to be made manifest. But God's still doing His thing. This is, this is, not, this is not about, you know, I understand people have very passionate views about 
you know, is this getting too strong or whatever? And all these tunnels under there, are they going too far? And, 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 you know, and this moral equivalency, I think, is a big mistake to make in our mind. We should not do that. Those are, that's God's domain. He's working that. He's working that out to his ultimate good. Our concern should be both ethnic groups and both receiving the gospel, praying for peace all the time. And then, as we'll see in closing, especially the believing Arab and Jewish community. Isaiah 19, here's your place of hope. This you can write and take home with you. You get concerned about the Middle East? Here's your picture. Here's what Isaiah was seeing. Isaiah 19, verse 17. The land of Judah will become a terror to Egypt. That happened in 67. It happened in 73. Uh, I don't know if this is even a, a, a further situation. There, there's a, some kind of conflagration that goes on with Israel and Egypt. I don't know. But I'm just telling you that Israel has become a thorn in the side of Egypt and Egypt in the side of Israel. Everyone to whom it is mentioned will be in dread of it because of the purpose of the Lord of hosts, which he is purposing against them. Notice, God is purposing things. God changes times and epochs. He, change, he raises up kings and he deposes them. He raises up regimes and he deposes them. But he's, Israel has a purpose and a prophetic destiny. In that day, five cities of the land of Egypt. You want hope? will be speaking the language of Canaan and swearing allegiance to the Lord of hosts. What? One will be called the city of destruction, and that day there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt. An altar to the Lord? What is Isaiah smoking here? An altar to the Lord in Egypt and a pillar to the Lord near its borders really sounds like the exodus, doesn't it? A pillar, cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. It will become a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt, and they will cry to the Lord because of oppressors, and he will send them a savior and a champion. Who might those oppressors be? Terrorists? Painful political upheaval? We saw that with the Arab Spring. We saw that start in Tunisia the Muslim Brotherhood. We've seen, we've seen Egypt really upended over the last 15 to 20 years, incredibly so. But he's going to send them a savior and a champion. Who do you think that's going to be? And he will deliver them. Thus the Lord will make himself known to Egypt and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day. Not know about the Lord. They will know. That sounds like new covenant, relational Holy Spirit inside, new heart, new spirit, kind of new covenant stuff. They'll know the Lord. They will even worship and sacrifice an offering. Our sacrifices are no longer blood. They don't need blood animals. Our sacrifices are lifted hands. Our offerings are our lives. Now, they might have seen that when Isaiah prophesied that, is they're going to reinstitute animal sacrifice or something. I don't, we know what our sacrifices and our offerings are today. He, Paul tells the Jewish believing community in his letter to the Hebrews. And they will make a vow to the Lord and perform it. And the Lord, now catch this, will strike Egypt. So there's always upheaval when these things happen. But notice, and this is key, striking, but healing. 
Is that what's going on right now in Gaza and Israel? And is there a striking going on to God's purposes with the ultimate purpose of healing? Could be. So they will return to the Lord and he will respond to them and he will heal them. In that day, it's not done with Egypt. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. Now, the Assyrians, when he was writing this, the Assyrian domination that, you know, of course, overtook the 10 tribes in the north uh, would have been the Levant area. I mean, it was, you know, Lebanon and Syria and portions of Iraq and Iran and Jordan, Transjordan stuff. I mean, all that area, all that Levant area, that was Assyria. There's going to be a highway from those areas, like where Hezbollah is and, 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 and some of the Syrians. Really, there's going to be a highway and what it's going to look like. That day there will be a highway and the Assyrians will come into Egypt and the Egyptians into Assyria and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. What kind of highway? Where does that highway lead? Right through the middle of Israel. In that day, Israel will be a third party with Egypt and Assyria. A blessing in the midst of the earth. Whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed is Egypt, my people. Really? And Assyria, the work of my hands. And Israel, my inheritance. How? Through a savior and a champion who will strike but heal? How do we not know this in the church today? How do we, how do we not? This should be on, a, and I know many people, this is, this is a picture of like, Lord, there's coming today, there's going to be a highway, and there's not going to be any vicious beasts on it, and, and people are going to be called to the highway, and it's going to go all the way through the biggest crisis in the, in the world today, and in the, in the, just exactly as the prophet's seen. Everyone who touches it will be harmed. It's, Jerusalem calls a reeling for everyone. Everyone just feels, oh, why can't we solve this little tiny piece of property in the Middle East? And they had seen this 2,700 years ago. And it's being fulfilled exactly, exactly as Isaiah had seen in, in our lifetime. Zechariah 12 says, in that day, verse 9, there will, I will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. And they, who's this? This is ethnic Israel, will look on me whom they have pierced. And they will mourn for him. As one mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly over him. Like the bitter weeping over a firstborn That is already happening. That is already happening. So before we think that God is unjustified, anytime he allows epochs or times to change or for upheaval to occur, striking but healing, why can't God do this without any conflagration, without any chaos, without any turmoil? Why can't God do that? If he's the God that can speak anything out of nothing into existence. Why can't God do this without all this trauma? Look at the trauma of the Jewish people. The Holocaust, the pogroms, the, the crusaders, the just general anti-Semitism as they've been diaspora. 
why striking, but healing? Well, because God was willing to strike his own son. Zechariah, writing some 500 years before the time of Jesus, says, Awake, O sword, my shepherd, and against the man, my associate, declares the Lord of hosts, Strike the shepherd, that the sheep may be scattered, and I will turn my hand against the little ones. That's exactly what happened. Jesus was struck. He was the shepherd. He was the associate. If God was willing to strike his own son to bring healing into your life, He may be doing that in the Middle East right now. Striking, but healing. So, I'm going to make this one quote. I'm going to play you a quick video. I'm going to, I'm going to show you a terrorist. I'm going to show you, a picture, uh, show you a short video of a terrorist, part of our One for Israel group. A terrorist who had been impacted by this savior and this champion. But listen to William Albright to maybe settle you a bit. Nothing could be further from the truth than the facile belief that God only manifests himself. If you think that God only manifests himself in progress, in the improvement of the standard of living and the spread of medicine and the reform of abuses, even in the diffusion of organized Christianity, the reaction from this type of theistic meliorism, which means that Somehow we think everything's just going to get better with human effort. Which a few years ago had almost completely supplanted the faith of Moses and Elijah and Jesus among modern Christians, both Protestant and Catholic, is now sweeping multitudes from their religious moorings. In other words, what does that mean? He says a lot of people are losing their faith because they see catastrophe and chaos. Because we've been lulled into the idea that Jesus can only use positive reform. Otherwise, he's losing control somehow. People are losing their moorings. Why? Well, he says it. It's very clear. Now catch this. Real spiritual progress can only be achieved through catastrophe and suffering, reaching new levels after the profound catharsis which accompanies major upheavals. Every such period of mental and physical agony, while the old is being swept away and the new is still unborn, yields different social patterns and deeper spiritual insights. We have more insight today in the church than we've ever had. Couldn't have imagined that there would be Arab and Jewish reconciliation. Not, it wasn't that long ago. And now Arabs, Palestinian Arabs are saying, I believe in Jesus. He's changed my life. He's the light of the world. Native, indigenous Israelis, I believe in Jesus as the Messiah. He's changed my life. And now I have nothing but love for the Palestinians. Or Palestinians, I have nothing but love for my Israeli brothers in Jesus. Let's watch this last video. Zechariah, he was a nice person. He was a decent person. He was very smart. He was the only Christian in the whole of the school. And I hated him. And because I thought as a Muslim, I must be better than him. But he was better than I. We start to beat him every single day that we come to school. And we agreed on that night, we need to kill him. 
It was dark. It was uh, cold. And we went ahead of him. And we were five of us. We climbed a tree and we waited there. And from far away, we saw that a torch coming. And the light became bigger and bigger as it approaches us. And the minute that he just went under the tree, we jumped at him. He was crying, he was screaming, he was shouting. We broke his arm, we broke his leg. He started to bleed. And because he started to scream and begging for help, I put my hand in his mouth so that no noise will come out. Similar when you are slaughtering a sheep, you know, it's just shivering and the others were beating him. I felt very proud. You were actually doing something for, for Allah. You know, you want to please him. And suddenly, he could no longer breathe and we could not hear his voice. We left him in the wood between life and death. We went back, you wash yourself and you pray. And Zechariah never came back. I've never seen him again. I was born and raised up in a very, very fanatic Muslim family. When I was a child, my father brought me to a Quran school. I was only eight years old, and my father just dropped me there. They shaved my head. We sat in a circle. The Shaykh sat in the middle of the circle, and he has a very long whip. I was forced to memorize the Quran. Every mistake that you do, this whip will just come right in the middle of your head. You're not allowed to cry, because in our culture they tell you men never cry. I was crying every single night. And they told me, you belong to the Islamic Ummah. And that's why you fight for it. You stay loyal to it. I started to hate people, to hate everybody who's not a Muslim. And I especially used to hate the Jews. So I was preparing myself to go and fight for Allah in the jihad. But every night I went to bed and when we put the light off, I did not know what will happen with me if I die. My cousin was severely sick and the doctors, they said he's going to die. They gave him only a couple of days. And when they came to people, they were Coptic Christians. And one of them wanted to greet me. And then I saw he had a cross. And then I pulled my hand back. I said, well, I'm not going to touch a hand with a cross. And then he said to me, we hear that this child is sick. Who would like to pray for him? And only out of politeness, I told them, okay. And they started to speak to God like a person that he speaks to his friend. They said, God, please heal this child. The minute that they said, Amen, this child opened his eyes for the first time in four weeks. He started to move his hands. He started to speak. He sat down in his bed and he started to walk. And one of those two persons who prayed sat down with me and he said to me, you know what? The real miracle is 
that God wants to change your heart. Do you believe that Yeshua is alive? And I told him, yeah. Because according to the Islamic tradition, God took him to heaven and he's alive and he will come back one day. And he said to me, because he's alive, you can speak to him. That changed my entire life. And when I started to read the scripture, nobody needed to convince me to love the Jewish people. The only way for Muslims to start to love the Jews is when they meet Yeshua. I loved my family. I loved my father. I loved my mother and I loved my community. And when I decided to follow Yeshua, my grandfather and my father said to me, you are no longer one of us. They made a funeral. They invited friends and family. They brought a coffin to the cemetery and they said, our son is dead. To be declared dead with no family. I said to God, where are you? I heard this voice and this voice told me, you know that the grave where your name is written, you know that grave is empty. And guess what? My grave is also empty. I went to Egypt for the first time after many years, and I was in a pastoral conference. And one of the Sudanese pastors came to me, it's an elderly man, gray hair, started to speak to me and he asked me, where did you come from? I told him my story. He started to cry. And then I asked him, why are you crying? And he said to me, do you remember me? My name is Zachariah. And suddenly, I remembered him. The last time I saw him, it was in that dark night. I could hear suddenly the way that he was screaming, even though that was 25 years. Suddenly, I started to see his broken arm and broken legs. I started to see the scars, which I caused him. I started to be full of shame. I was a bad person, yeah. I was terrible. So Zachariah looked me straight into the eye again and he said to me, answer yes, because you hated me so much. I was always praying for you. He opened his Bible and the minute he opened his Bible, I saw that my name was written in the first page. I hated him. He prayed for me. On that day, God confronted me. He said to me, even before you start to think about me, I was thinking about you. To love those who hate you, you need someone whose name is Yeshua. Let's stand. Uh, before we close with this uh, worship song, I'm going to give you an opportunity to pray. Maybe you've had some 
anti-Semitism in you. Somehow you just, ethnically, you just, maybe you've had a bad experience with a Jewish person or you just somehow you, uh, you need to ask God to forgive you for that. Or if you've hated the Palestinians, big mistake. You can hate the spirit that drives Hamas because that is our foe. I'm in a life and death struggle with Satan every day of my life. And when he's made manifest, I stand against evil. Satan is evil. Lord Jesus, we, we thank you for this morning. Um, I'm asking, if maybe there's some here that just say, Lord, I, forgive me. I've had this deep-seated animosity towards Jewish men and women, either here or in Israel or around the world. Or Forgive me. I, I, I didn't understand this mystery. I was uninformed of this mystery. And I was wise in my own estimation. Or if you're maybe even Jewish or otherwise, and you've somehow been brought it, you've been drawn into the inflamed rhetoric of geopolitical events of which somehow God is superintending anyway, and you've come to hate the Palestinians or hate Arab-speaking people because of 9-11 or whatever, ask the Lord to forgive you and begin to pray, as Zechariah did. Pray for those who persecute you. Jesus, you couldn't have been more clear. Amen. So as we close with this worship song, just try to take it in, be contemplative about this morning, and uh, oh, we love you.